welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. This is our last session, and uh, we hope you hope you've enjoyed this weekend. This is our third annual SOS Souls of Serenity Marathon, and we just thank God for that. And uh, so, without further ado, I'm going to bring up a dear friend of mine, and uh, it's our first speaker for SNN. And this girl I met within my first year of recovery, and. Uh, I've had some real highs and some real lows with this person and had unconditional love throughout. And I think it's been mutual. Um, there's been lots of get-togethers, lots of card games, lots of, oh, well, I could go on and on. But uh, we're really good friends, and this is a person who I really trust her honesty with me. I trust the program, the step work, and... Uh, and the loyalty to the fellowship and the friendship. So uh, I hope you guys enjoy this. I know you will. Shelby B. Okay. Does that work? Good? Okay. I'm laughing because I'm, I'm married to a sound guy who is not here who would do all of this really easily. Um, so I, I talked to Brad, said, you're going to go first. And he said, and then we get the rebuttal. And, uh, and I said, well, the rebuttal gets half the time because I went to a transit debate last week and the rebuttal only got half. So I'll, um, I'll keep time, see how that goes, right? Isn't that thrill? Uh, whenever I want to make sure that I am um, in inviting my higher power into a space my tool of choice is the third step prayer. And so I thought if anybody knows that, if you want to say it with me before I start, um, that, that would help me. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. So the first thing I thought of was um, 
a woman that I remember speaking at the very first international convention, I think, that I went to. And she sat up in front, and she was supposed to be talking about gratitude. And she said, I'm grateful for air and coffee, coffee and air. That's really all I can think of. And she said, and then I pull up the hood of my sweatshirt, and I look like the Unabomber, and most of the time I wish I was dead. And she painted a really good picture of herself huddled in that hoodie for days on end and said she thought that she was going to lose her mind. Um, she said she thought she'd rather be dead. And then all she could think of to be thankful for in her life was air and then coffee. And that was after a lot of work. Uh, I can almost taste how that desperation felt. Uh, my body can feel it, kind of like I can feel a finger that I broke when I was playing touch football when it's about to rain. I can feel it. Um, and I remember that. I remember that feeling. For me, that was about seven years ago. Um, and I remember taking long showers um, just because I needed a place to go scream these kind of soundless screams. They didn't even have noise. Um, but they were uh, they were almost always without tears but gut-wrenching. And I felt like I had to hide in the shower um, just so that I didn't scare my family. I remember putting appointments on my calendar, um, trying to set aside specific times to cry so that I could hold myself together for the rest of my life, and then I would have that moment, 7.20 a.m., drive the carpool, 8.15 a.m., go to the grocery store, 9.35 a.m., sob hysterically. I literally put those in my phone. Um, it didn't work very well. I felt like I was going to get some horrible kind of cancer from trying to hold it all together, like my head might explode from the pressure of the pent-up emotion. I felt like uh, the giant old-fashioned pedestal bird bath that I have in my backyard that's always filled to the brim with water, just right to the edge. It takes one tiny additional drop of water to overflow. And the tears felt like they were always right on the edge, just like that for me. Um, I couldn't eat during the early days after discovery. I remember vividly the sound of my back door. I was usually in the bed at that point, um, had trouble getting up in the mornings, and the door would slam shut. My brother-in-law, who worked from home during the day and lived nearby, would step, and I could hear him, 10 steps, one, two, three, into the kitchen, over to the refrigerator. And I'd hear the creak of the refrigerator door, and he would put a smoothie in there um, that he thought I might be able to choke down. And I would text him, snarky bitch. And I would say, thanks, that had too much taste. It was banana. It made me feel sick. I can't drink it. Take it away. And I'd hear the back door slam, 10 steps to the fridge, the creak of the door, another smoothie. Couldn't finish it. Too much vanilla. The days ran into weeks and months. It's a blur of lost time for me now. It was definitely a blur then. My sister picked me up off the floor most days and brought me to meetings. And I bought every SNN book that we had. I did the readings because someone said they helped, and I went to therapy. But I didn't stop wishing I was dead for at least six months, and I didn't really want to live for a lot longer than that. So how did I get here? I married my college sweetheart. We met the third week of my freshman year, and we were the couple that everybody said they wanted to be, a perfect match. We were young and happy and healthy and in love. Seventeen years later, we had three healthy kids, great education, good jobs, our dream house, we're happily living in this great city where I grew up, near my family. Uh, we were church leaders. We volunteered at the kids' schools. We had a minivan, two dogs, took great vacations, and more friends than we could fit on the calendar. 
And all of that crashed down around me in an instant when I learned about my husband's double life from an affair partner. I got a Facebook friend request that contained an album of photos of my husband with another woman traveling the world together. Uh, My brain went immediately to thoughts of edited pictures, Photoshop, blackmail. Someone was trying to ruin my perfect life. That is how completely unaware I was. But then I found the extra cell phone I didn't know about, and I found the credit card I didn't know he had. I found the passport with trips to places that I had never been and didn't know he had been. And it started to dawn on me that maybe, maybe this was true. Maybe it was as bad as I feared. I've said before that my reality turned out to be like a Lifetime movie, the kind where you'd change the channel because that would really never happen. Um, And for a Lifetime movie, I think that bar is set pretty low already, and it was all true, and much more. Sex addiction had taken a sudden, dramatic, devastating toll on my family. Within 24 hours, I learned my husband was an addict, he was living a secret life, and that within the week, he was going to be going to treatment out of state for an indefinite period of time. I learned that the links that he had gone to to try to hide his addiction had gotten very expensive, and that had resulted in some illegal behavior. So then there was the inexorable march through the legal system. Debt mounted. Jobs were lost. What he had had to do to keep his secrets from me resulted in prison time. So many unknowns that it was terrifying, with sand constantly shifting under our feet. Our lives and the most titillating parts of our story made the newspaper, and some of it was true, Although most of it wasn't, but nobody seemed to care. Many of our friends turned away, unsure of what to do, unsure of what to say. It can be like a contagious disease when people learn about addiction, I think. Everyone seems to be afraid. They were afraid of me, afraid of my family. If we still hang out with those people, will it rub off on us? We had two boys and a girl. They were 14, 10, and 6 at the time. My children were so confused and broken. The losses were brutal and sometimes unexpected. But, Mommy, why won't he come to my birthday party? Well, it's hard to explain that it's because his mom read in the newspaper that his dad was a sex addict and she doesn't understand what that is and she doesn't want him anywhere near your kid, not ever again. We changed from having family conversations about what the kids should wear to church on Sunday to what they should wear to visit their dad in prison on the weekends. No baseball caps, no khaki pants. Did you know that when you get near the end of a phone call with someone in prison, the minutes start to count down? Five, four, three. And your daughter cries every time. Every time. So we got her a pink Barbie phone that lit up her room, so she always knew when he was calling, and we learned that he needed to say goodbye and hang up quickly before the time started counting down so we could avoid the tears, at least to try. But there were rivers of tears. Their dad was absolutely as crushed as I was that he missed four birthdays, two graduations. I've moved my son into his college dorm all by myself. These were brutal losses. So how did I get here? It's easy to point to the addict and say that he was somehow to blame for everything. In our case, there is kind of a glaringly obvious addict arrow that may point out a bad guy if we need one, and sometimes I did. Honestly, sometimes in my weaker moments, I probably still do. I have a whole heck of a lot of hatred for this disease. Sex addiction is a silent killer. It hides in the shadows of nights and weekends and computers and pornography, things we are not supposed to talk about, and I could throw a lot of anger and blame that way. But coming to at least one meeting a week for more than seven years has taught me better than that. 
When sex addiction threatened to take my partner and my family, I gave it a very soft place to land. I held the door open, and I welcomed it into my home and my family, even though I didn't know I was doing it. I can admit that I didn't see what I couldn't see, didn't know what I couldn't know. If I am being honest, I believe I was raised to be attracted to an addict. It was always meant to be. I was hardwired to over-control, over-plan, over-function, and ignore anything that didn't fit inside my picture, just dragging everyone else along with me. I ran myself and my family ragged, trying to keep everyone in line and all the balls I was juggling up in the air. If anybody didn't go along with my plans, I would shame them or just exhaust them until they gave up and got in line. I had a really skewed view of the world and what was important. If other people said they respected my marriage or my parenting, that was just another endorsement of my own worldview and my inflated view of myself and my life, which I later learned included a whole lot of judgment and a lot of one-upsmanship. I gave a lot of advice, and it didn't matter much to me if you asked for it or not. Turns out I was a natural leader, a teacher, a trainer, a parent. It all fed right into my character defect of blindly forging ahead, certain I had all the answers without waiting for my higher power to lead the way. We were living a very fast-paced, expensive, but not at all valuable life, and I was like a gambler on a winning streak until the luck ran out. For me, that looked like the form of being married to an addict who happened to get caught, but I've got a friend who says the nons and addicts are just two sides of the same coin, and I really believe that. It's just the luck of the draw, one good choice, one bad decision, and how I get from one day to the next, whether I've got a non or SA on my name tag. The game was up. So how did I get here? High life was over. Thanks to all the publicity, lost business, and prison time, denial was not an option. The addict paid his debt to society and got sober, so all I had left was the face in the mirror. I was lonely and sad and stripped down to nothing, without answers or advice for myself or anyone else, because who was I if I wasn't that person? My best laid, organized plans had landed me in a terrible, untenable mess of a life. I was coming to meetings, but I remember telling my therapist I was quitting because everyone in there was really screwed up and I knew a lot more than they did. <laughs> and she said I had her blessing to quit, but it was only after I got a sponsor. Fine, I'll do that too. I got a sponsor, someone that I thought was either completely insane or if the way she said she lived her life was actually real and it was filled with laughter and gratitude and transparency, the likes of which I had never seen, then I wanted some of that for myself. So I started doing the work, and bless her heart for sticking with me through it. I requested charts for my step work and all kinds of other crazy. Finally got myself that sponsor, and I got to work getting sober, and sometimes it sucked. And it turned out that recovery work never ends, and that sucked, too. <laughs> my essay and I ended up divorcing, but not because I ran away from all the pain and not because he wouldn't do what I wanted anymore, although he wouldn't, thank goodness. Mostly it was because when we both got sober, we realized we were really very different people. We always had been. Now we've all made lots of amends, former ones, now living amends. For a while after he got out of prison, he actually rented the apartment in my basement so that he would have lots of time to reconnect with the kids. Since then, he's been my new husband's personal trainer, and we've celebrated our kids' milestones together. You can't make this shit up. <laughs> Remember that Lifetime movie, no one would think whatever really happened? Well, it turns out I'm still living it. But it is so different. It's like seeing the world through a different kind of lens, and this one has all the colors. One of my favorite tenets of recovery is the one about timing. 
I need to get out of my own way and stop trying to take control and let my higher power take the lead. It's amazing what a gift life can be when that is what guides me. My higher power's timing is perfect. I'd have never dreamed of the life and the love that I have today. I took a chance on a line of work for which I have no educational background or experience, and turns out I'm pretty good at it. I switched jobs within that field before Christmas, and it's the best work experience I've ever had, with important work and rewards like I've never had at any job. I watched my growing, thriving children, they're 21, 18, and 14 now, make their way through life in stunned amazement, and it is not because they are a credit to me. They are wonderful reflections of their own gifts and hard work at their own recoveries and their own relationships with their higher powers. A couple of years ago, I met a man I married last summer who has only known me as I had grown and matured in my sobriety rather than the crazy control freak I was before. The life we lead is one full of peace, gratitude, and joy. Even in the chaos of moving to a new house in two weeks and two graduations in May, I can appreciate the difference between this life of recovery and the one from before. It is honest and transparent, and I am fully in it, watching my higher power work the miracles every day. It is so far from perfect, but I can live confidently in the knowledge that I've been through a lot and survived. I have tools and friends from this program who will see me through anything. I was humbled and brought to my knees in what I now believe is the only way that I could ever be reached. HP had to give me a giant wake-up call I would never have heard. But I have now been given gifts beyond measure at just the right time and with open arms by the God of my understanding. I may have hidden in my hoodie back in the day, but I didn't die. I kept coming back. I learned to be grateful, first for air, then for coffee. Today, I'm glad I've decided to live, and I still get to choose it every day. Thanks. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.